it's good to be back with you this morning, and uh, thanks so much to the other elders who faithfully carried us forward um, through 1 John the last month or so, and it's good to jump back in to 1 John this morning. We have, uh, if you're a guest, we've been making our way kind of section by section through John's first letter. John was Jesus' best friend, and he is writing to uh, Christians um, with a main purpose to help them understand what it means to be a Christian and how they can be assured that they are one. So, like uh, Larry was just talking about, related to what Pastor Ted preached last week, John chapter 3, or 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, kind of ties the two messages together, because in the middle of that verse, he makes a shift to talking, uh, what he was talking about, which is righteousness and practicing righteousness, and shifts to talking about loving um, our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I just want to make an introductory word before we get into the text this morning, something I don't think has been said as we've made our way through 1 John yet. And that is that all these subjects that John is addressing, the three main ones that he kind of keeps circling back to over and over again, who Jesus is, how we are to respond in obedience to him personally, morally, ethically, and then relationally, socially loving people, all those go together. We might treat them separately, and John treats them separately, but the reason he circles back to them again is because this is the fabric of Christianity. You can't pull one thread out and not undo the whole fabric. So it's not like, well, what we believe about Jesus doesn't really matter. What matters is obeying God and loving others. No. Or we can't say, well, what really matters is obeying God. It really doesn't matter what we think about Jesus or how we respond to other people. Nor can we say, well, it's all about loving other people. Who cares how we live personally or what we think about Jesus? The Bible puts all those things together. You can't have one without the other. And while John seems to separate head, heart, and hands, or what we think about Jesus, how we respond to him morally and ethically, and how we love others, while John might treat those things separately, he does it only for matters of emphasis and not because they are opposed to one another. Indeed, they can't be opposed to one another because the same God that according to Isaiah 6 verse 3 is holy is the same God according to 1 John 4 8 who is love. To practice righteousness is to obey the commands of God. And what is chief among the commands of God? To love one another. So to be holy, to know Jesus, is to love. And to love our fellow Christians is to be holy. Now, why do I emphasize that? For this reason, Ray Ortland, pastor in Nashville, makes the following comment. He says, if a church's heart is warm and tender before the Lord, emotionally healthy and relationally rich, that church will tend to love the Bible and stay on track theologically, and bear fruit with enduring faithfulness. But if a church's heart cools toward the Lord, and becomes detached, and aloof, and proud, and their rich fellowship fades into mere social courtesies, as we pass like ships in the night, without deep and meaningful connection, that church becomes doctrinally unstable. Now why can he make comments like that? Because you can't have one without the other. You can't have orthodox belief in Jesus, no obedience and no love. Because eventually that lack of obedience and lack of love will compromise orthodoxy. 
The same way, you can't have an authentic, genuine, holy life and a loving life toward others and not be doctrinally orthodox. So John's point is to weave these things together over and over and over again so that we will learn that this is a fabric, this is a tapestry in which Christianity is holistic. It affects our minds, it affects our hearts and behavior, it affects our lives of love and service. It all goes together. Now, his main point this morning in 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 18, is to say this, that the distinguishing difference between the children of God and the children of the devil is love for your brothers and sisters in Christ, defined here to be a compassionate and sacrificial responsiveness to the life-sustaining needs of the church. I'm going to read that one more time. That's the whole sermon, and then we'll unpack it for 30 minutes or so. The distinguishing difference between the children of God and the children of the devil is love for other Christians, defined here to be a compassionate and sacrificial responsiveness to the life-sustaining needs of others. And to explain that important point, John is going to hold before us two examples. An example of hate in the person of Cain and an example of love in the person of Christ. Because Cain is an example of a child of the devil and Christ is an example of a child of God. And so he's going to hold up these great two biblical examples and call us to reject the example of Cain and pursue the example of Christ. So let's talk about Cain first. First point, Cain, an example of hate. This is in verses 11 through 15. Let's walk through these verses together. Verse 11, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This is similar to what John said in 1 John chapter 2, verse 7, the first time we came to this subject of love. He said, behold, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is a word that you have heard, and it's the word to love one another. This is basic Christianity. And John's revisiting it here in a slightly different way, pulling up the example of Cain and Christ. Now, why the example of Cain? Well, let's turn back to the story, shall we? Let's revisit what Cain actually did in Genesis chapter 4. So if you want to go very back to the very beginning of your Bible, fourth chapter, it doesn't take long for hate to surface and death to come and murder to happen post-Genesis 3, right after the fall of man into sin, we read this account beginning in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up 
against his brother Abel and killed him. Now, why, according to the text, did God reject Abel's or Cain's offering but accepted Abel's, his brother? Well, we're not specifically told in this passage, but we know what it's not. It's not that what they offered was substantially wrong. It says that God had ordained that grain offerings be offered in Leviticus 2, just as Cain offered, so it wasn't his offering that was the problem. God's displeasure was not due to Cain's failure to bring a blood sacrifice like Abel did because Abel was a tender of livestock and Cain was a tender of the ground. So they offered what they worked. They offered what they did. But Abel offered, according to Genesis 4, verse 4, the firstborn of the flock. He gave of the first fruits. He gave the best. And while it's not said, I think it can be assumed that the same is not said of Cain. And so apparently, he gave second best or part of the harvest, maybe the leftovers, maybe the part that, but it certainly wasn't the first. But I think a more definitive answer is given in Hebrews chapter 11 as to why the Lord accepted Abel's offering and rejected Cain's. In Hebrews 11:4, it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gift. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. It's not said about Cain. So there was an evident trusting of God and faith that was demonstrated by Abel that was not demonstrated by Cain. So we must understand this, that Cain's hatred for his brother started in his hatred for God. That's where all hate begins. It never starts horizontally. It always starts vertically. Hatred for God leads to hatred for other people. Cain did not trust God and was therefore selfish because selfishness comes from hatred for God. People who are selfish, when we are behaving selfishly, we are acting in hatred towards God. We have to hoard. We're not trusting him. And so it leads us to be selfish. Instead of giving away his best possessions, which as we will see is the mark of true love, Cain withholds his best. Now even Cain's hatred for God has an original source, and that's the devil. Notice in verse 12 it says that Cain... We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. So the source of his hatred was the fact that he was a child of the devil that that manifested itself in a me-first, self-centered, non-sacrificial, envious, jealous life, which is reflective of a satanic heart. Because Satan is the most selfish being in the universe. The goal of Satan is not to get people to carry a pitchfork or celebrate or not celebrate Halloween or wear a devil's tail. The goal of Satan is just to get you to be selfish. Just live for you. And he is massively succeeding. 
massively succeed across the world every single day. And it is this hatred in Cain's heart that eventually gives birth to murder. Because it, it, that, that selfish heart resides first in Satan himself. That's why he comes to the garden to try to murder Adam and Eve. By getting them to murder themselves. And it's what he does in the heart of Cain to try to get rid of the seed of the woman, which was promised in Genesis 3.15 by putting it in the heart of Cain to take him out. It is this kind of hatred, according to John, in verse 13, that characterizes the world. That is, the people who are opposed to God. That's why he says in verse 13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. The world is full of the sons of Cain. Don't be surprised when you get hated. Now, this is not a hatred because we're jerks. This is a hatred because we're like Christ. Notice the reason that John gives for why ultimately Cain murdered Abel. He says, and why did he murder him, verse 12? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, think about this. Why does John bring up Cain to Christians? Why does he tell this example to the church? I mean, is he scared Christians are going to start killing each other? I mean, is that his main concern? Don't kill one another. No, that's not his main concern. We're not prone to kill each other, but we are prone to hate each other. How? The human heart that is falling short in some way is so easily angered by people who are making progress where we are failing. We get resentful and we avoid them because our sins get exposed. More shrewd, though, is to counter-criticize some weak point they have. This is very, very common in the church. Like Cain, we become so eaten up with what's going on in our brother's or sister's life that it keeps us from having to deal with our own junk. Listen, the application here is be concerned with your walk with God. Instead of allowing the better example of his brother, Abel, to provoke him to humility and self-examination, what did he do? He got jealous that God was giving him some attention. Why is he getting all the attention? Why is he doing that? Why is God blessing him? Not blessing me. What am I doing? And instead of allowing this to humble him and lead him to self-examination, which would result result in greater, hopefully, repentance and correction in his life and thankfulness and encouragement and purity and kindness. Instead of being challenged by Abel's example, he was arrogant, he was envious, he was jealous, he was resentful, 
and he wanted him out. Now listen, lest we think this is not present in the church, we need to know that it is. This is why in verse 12 he says, His own deeds were evil, Cain's that is, and his brothers were righteous. See, this selfishness inhibits love because it keeps you focused on yourself and unable to perceive, discern, and sacrifice for the needs of others in the church. So this particular issue with Cain is a particular caution to us that we need to be aware of because if we're not taking heed to our own walk with God and allowing our brothers and sisters walks to appropriately challenge, humble, correct, encourage, we will become like Cain and not like Christ. And notice the results of this behavior, what happens as a result. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So if we are Cain-like in our behavior, jealous, resentful, envious, and not self-sacrificial and humble and caring, then that's a manifestation that we don't know God, that we have not yet experienced conversion, that we have not yet passed out of death into life. And then verse 15, John gives a reason for this. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So there's the negative example, Cain. An example of hate. But let's spend the rest of our time looking at point number two, Christ, an example of love. And this is in verses 16 through 18. This is the contrast that John draws up for us as the church. And here he wants to tell us what love is. He wants to tell us this is what love is. And he says, love is the willingness to surrender that which has value for your own life in order to enrich the life of another. That's what love is. Love is the willingness to surrender that which has value for your own life in order to enrich the life of others. That's what Cain did not do. He was not willing to give up that which he valued to enrich the life of someone else. See, it kind of redefines what hate is, doesn't it? Hate is not going out and choking your brother and sister in Christ and smacking them to the ground. Hate is withholding sacrificial care from them. Inconvenience. Being unwilling to get dirty and messy to care about somebody. That's what hate is. That's hatred. Let's see how it's manifested here in the life of Christ. This love, not hatred, of course, but this love that's manifested. Verse 16, by this we know love. Here's how we know what love is. That he laid down his life for us. Cain didn't do that. Cain said to Abel, your life for mine. Your life for mine. But Christ says, my life for yours. My life for yours. That's the difference between Cain and Christ. Cain is your life for mine. You exist to serve me. You exist to help me. You exist to bless me. You exist to convenience me. You exist to serve me. Christ says, I exist to serve you. 
I exist to give myself up for you. I exist to lay down my life for you. I exist to die for you. And notice the implication that John makes. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Why? Because we're Christians. It's what Christians do. Little Christ's do that. Because the big Christ did that for us. Then verse 17. But if anyone, and then here's the practical application of what does it look like to lay down your life for somebody? What does it mean to do that? Does it mean you physically die? That's not the example he uses. For Christ, it meant that, but not for us. It may mean that, but not likely. But here's what it most likely will mean, verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Then verse 18, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed or and in truth. Now, let's talk just briefly about this closing your heart. It says in verse 17, if anyone sees his brother in need, has something he can do about it, but closes off his heart to him. Just a couple of texts on that. Would you hold your finger in 1 John, turn back to Deuteronomy 15? This may be where John's getting this idea from. We can't know for sure. We can't get into his mind. But it's certainly similar language to what he is using here in this passage. Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 through 9. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. Now notice what he says, the justifications we can make for closing our heart to one another. He says, look, it's getting real close. The debts are going to be settled soon. You know, we're getting close to an, a, a new feast year. It's going to be okay. This is going to all be recompense. I don't have to care about this now. And how can that manifest itself in our lives as the church? Well, they'll probably get another job soon. You know? Don't we have a benevolence fund? Um, you know, well, it'll all be made right in heaven. God's the one who disperses things in this life. We just need to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So we find ways to justify our lack of sacrificial love and close our heart. This is also an issue that James addresses in James chapter 2. If you want to turn back there, I'll read these verses quickly. James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. James says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm, and be filled. Here he says, God bless you, brother. God bless you. Without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also... Faith, by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That's what John's saying. Let us not love. You think they would have learned, James and John learned this from the same Jesus. They did. So said, Don't let, let, let's not just love in talk, but let's love in truth. 
in word and deed. Now, why does he have to say that? Because we can hear sermons on the need to sacrificially love one another and ignore it. Listen, brother and sister, I'm saying this to myself too, we don't get to ignore this. You do not get to walk away from this unchanged. You do not get to walk away from this behaving the same way you behaved when you came in here. You don't get to do that. Jesus is Lord, right? And so we need to realize that we don't get to love the thought of being loving. That would be a good idea. Let's be loving. We don't get to love the thought of being loving. We actually have to be loving. We have to love. We are not at liberty to decide that we are just going to love the thought of loving and not loving, actually loving. And brother, sister in Christ, this applies to every one of us, not the person you're thinking about who's not loving you enough, which is what we're all prone to do with stuff like this. Well, I'd be more loving if people loved me better. No, that's a manifestation of selfishness, which needs to be repented of because it's of the heart of Cain. Get your eyes off yourself. Stop thinking about all the ways that people are failing to love you and start loving sacrificially other people. That's your responsibility. It's not your responsibility to be the, the, the righteousness standard for everyone to determine how sacrificial they are. Nobody is going to give an account to you on the day of judgment for how loving they were. But you're going to give an account to Jesus, and I am too. And so let's concern ourselves like Abel was with offering an acceptable sacrifice by faith rather than Cain, who was wondering why his brother was getting approval and he wasn't. See, of all the impediments and obstacles to loving one another that can be mentioned, our own selfishness is the most common. If something is going to cause us pain, discomfort, or inconvenience, or reduce our own temporary pleasure, we tend to avoid it like the plague. Indeed, when we reflect on our own lives with any degree of honesty, we begin to realize that we're all failures when it comes to loving others, aren't we? So much of what passes as love is done only because it makes us feel better about ourselves and it's convenient at the time. That's so much of what we call love. And it's not love. Convenient, making us feel better, is not anywhere in this passage. Often it does not stem from a heart concern from another's well-being, but a concern for getting us something that we can throw up on our Instagram feed or Facebook feed that people will notice. Give us a little pat on the back. But alongside this obstacle, that is selfishness, which is the big one, also this contributes to another obstacle. So our concern with ourselves contributes to our inability to recognize the needs that others have, right? Because if we're consumed with ourselves and our own needs, we're not thinking about others and their needs. And this often stems from laziness. We don't work to recognize what the needs of others might be. We often fail to ask ourselves, I wonder what's going on in that person's life. I wonder what needs they have. I wonder what I can do to encourage that brother or sister and push them closer to God. So we must study our brothers and sisters and ask, what do they need? 
What do they need? What do they need? And thankfully, there are so many examples of that already in our church that I see. And I know the other pastors would see this as well. Seeing examples of sacrificial love. Let me give you some that I observe and sure others observe. When meals are cooked for sick families and taken to their home. When a family is helped to move heavy furniture. When babysitting is taking place so a young couple can have a date night. Or when a senior saint is given ride to church. Or when someone forgives someone 70 times 7 and refuses to grow bitter against a brother or sister. When hospitality is shown without grumbling and strangers and guests are welcomed and befriended. When a sick member is visited in the hospital or a visitation has taken place at a funeral. And you don't even know that member. But you heard they lost a family member, so you're going. You're going to show up. Why? Because you have a personal relationship with them? No, because you heard that they're a Christian and they're a part of Heritage Baptist Church. And that's what Christians do. The prerequisite for love is not knowing a person. The prerequisite for love is not having a friendship with a person. The prerequisite for love is knowing they are a Christian. Rebuking a brother or sister who is wandering into sin or hanging in there with a person who is draining and difficult. Paying someone's electric bill or helping a member get their car fixed or serving in the nursery and kids ministry. Giving financially with consistency and cheerfulness and being willing to disciple someone. Donating items to church members who are fostering or giving to the mash offering to benefit Operation Christmas Child or opening your home to host a church event or praying through the membership directory or loving your wife or husband or staying on the phone a little longer with that sister who is lonely or attending baby showers or prioritizing church gatherings. There's all kinds of ways. And those are just, that's just a handful of sacrificial examples that are the stuff of Christian life, of stuff, the stuff of sacrificial love. So the deep penetrating question that I have for us this morning is this. Are you choosing to suffer for anyone? Or at the moment it gets a little too costly, do you bail? So I'm not in it for this. I'm in it for convenient. I'm in it for making me feel better. But I'm not in it for sacrifice. Well, then you're not in it for Christ. What are you in it for? What are you in this Christian life for? What am I in this Christian life for? Are we sacrificing for anyone or are all our decisions comfort decisions? I don't want to do that. I won't do that because it's inconvenient. It's hard. It hurts. It's tiring. I'm not gifted. Most things in life, most acts of sacrificial love are tiring, not convenient, disruptive, and not in your gift set. Here's an example. Let me give you an example from Scott Sauls, another Nashville pastor. I don't know why I keep quoting these Nashville pastors. They're not any more special, but for some reason they're close to us. Here's what Scott Sauls shares what happened at a little prayer meeting at his house one time when some disruptive sacrificial love needed to happen, and 
thankfully they stepped into it like Christ and not like Cain. Here's what he says. Once we were meeting with some friends for prayer, just before we began praying, in came a husband and wife that we had never met. They'd been invited by someone else in the group. The man's name was Matthew, and he was drunk. And his wife had a desperate, somebody please help me because I'm dying inside look on her face. As we prayed together, Matthew decided to chime in. His was a drunk prayer that went on for over 10 minutes. He prayed some of the strangest things. God, protect us from the Klingons. God, I really want a Jolly Rancher right now. And will you bring us some Jolly Ranchers? God, please move my bananas to the doghouse. After the amen, everyone looked at me. What will the pastor do? after the Klingon Jolly Rancher banana in the doghouse prayer. Thankfully, I didn't need to do anything because a woman from the group, full of love and wisdom, offered Matthew a cookie. As the woman was giving him a cookie and entertaining conversation about Klingons and such, five or six others went over to his wife and begged for insight on how they could help the situation. This little interaction, this way of responding with love and no condemnation first became one of the most transformative experiences I have ever witnessed. The kind-hearted offer of a cookie led to a different kind of mob, a mob of grace coming around the couple and their two young boys, which led to a month of rehab, which led to sobriety, which led to a restored home and marriage, which led to Matthew becoming a follower of Jesus which led to him later becoming an elder in our church. That's what sacrificial love does. It makes drunkards into pastors. Let's do it. Let's see God. You want to see God work? This is where we see him work. That is uncomfortable. I don't want people like that showing up to my small group. But God does, and we need to have them there too because God sent them there, and God sent them there to make them pastors, at least in this case. Here's what Mark Dever says. Our churches are to be communities that are typified by being full of people who regard each other more highly than they regard themselves. So we're not to be marked by merely reciprocal love, loving those who love us. Even the pagans do that, as Jesus told his disciples, we're to be those who love unilaterally, regardless of how we are cared for or responded to. As Christians, our emotional funds of loving others are not supplied by the ways others meet our needs, but by the way Christ has loved us. We are to be a community that looks for ways we can love others. From caring for the audio needs to the elderly needs in our church, we simply need to have eyes for what's going on around us in order to see how we can lay down our lives for others and so, so love as Christ has loved us. End quote. Now let me conclude in two minutes with five quick ways for how to get there. To get this residual cane out of us that's still living in there, but it's no longer ruling, no longer reigning, just the flesh, must be killed, must be crucified, the selfishness and love, selfless, selfishness into selflessness. And here's how we get there. Number one, study the cross. Study the cross. That's what John tells us to do. Verse 16, study the cross. Get to know what Jesus did for you. He laid his life down for you. 
you, you will lay down your life for others. Behold the depth and extent of God's mercy on you and love for you, dear brother and sister in Christ. Has anyone ever been more compassionate than our Savior? Has anyone ever acted more self-sacrificially in love? Has, how has Jesus loved you, dear believer? Was anything in your life an obstacle to him? Was he resentful toward you? Were there any limits placed upon his willingness to meet your deepest needs? No. Even now he ever lives to make intercession before you, for you. Nothing will separate you from his love, and he will see to that. And because Jesus is all in with you, we can be all in for others. You don't have to look out for yourself. Jesus looks out for you. You don't have to worry or try to secure your future because Jesus has secured your future. You don't have to worry how your needs will be met. Jesus has concerned himself with meeting your needs so that we will be able to meet the needs of others. You can be totally invested in others because Jesus is totally invested in you. That's what enables us to love, knowing that Christ is totally in, all in, totally invested in caring and loving me so that I am able to care and love and serve others. That's number one, study the cross. Number two, recognize that you have passed out of death into life. Verse 14. We are not in the realm of death anymore. We are in the realm of life, eternal life. We have passed out of that old, selfish, me-first, dead existence into a life of Christ-exalting, other-oriented selflessness. That's our life now. It's who we are. Now we just have to believe it and live it. We've passed out of death into life. Verse 14. Number three. According to verse 15, you have eternal life abiding in you. I don't know if that, 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 that'll get you to love. I got eternal life living in me. The, the Holy Spirit is living in me, and I am abiding in Christ, and Christ is abiding in me, and I have eternal life in him. Number four, according to verse 18, you're a little child of God. Little children. We're little children. And then verse 5, according to, number 5, according to verse 10, we have been born of God. This is what enables us to love others. Studying the cross. Realizing we've passed out of death into life. Realizing we have eternal life abiding in us. Realize we are God's child and realize that we have been born of God. Now as I summarize, come on up worship team, we'll get ready to sing here in response to this. I just want to give you the summary, and then I'll pray. Here's the summary of hate. Here's the summary of love. Hate characterizes the world, is exemplified by Cain, originates with the devil, issues in murder, and is evidence of spiritual death. Hate is negative. It seeks the other person's harm and leads to activity against them, even to the point of taking one's life through murder. Love, on the contrary, characterizes the church. It's exemplified by Christ. It originates in God. It issues not in murder, but self-sacrifice. It's the evidence not of spiritual death, but eternal life. It's not negative like hate is, but positive. Instead of seeking the other person's harm, love seeks the other person's good. 
Instead of leading to activity against them, love leads to activity for them. Instead of taking one's life through murder like hate does, love gives one's life even to the point of dying for another. Let us be like Cain or Christ and not like Cain. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity this morning to dip into your word, to be reminded of where we've come from, who we were. We were all in Cain at one point. We were all sons of Adam. And Cain was the first. And therefore, we were born with this native bent of sin and selfishness. And yet, through the work and salvation that we've experienced in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have called us out of that life. We have passed out of death into life. We are born of God. We are the children of God now. We have eternal life abiding in us. We have the very Son of God himself who came and laid down his life for us so that we ought, must, lay down our lives for each other. Give us all the grace we need to be more like you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand together and respond.